0: Welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus Who live and work in the city of Glasgow And it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives So as well as listening to this podcast We'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning Or get involved in one of our missional communities Which are across the city throughout the week our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. We are, you're joining us in, well, towards the end now of our series on the book of Revelation. In my mind, it seems uh, pretty obvious to say every day we are bombarded with lies and values or stories that kind of just come at us, sometimes deceptively, sometimes blatantly, sometimes quite subtly or innocently, which are, are vying for our attention as they try to shape us or convince us that this way or that way will make us feel better will make us feel whole, will give us the life that we really want, will, will give us a sense of satisfaction. And I guess this comes to us whether it's through mainstream media and marketing campaigns, or it comes to us through the world of social media or alternative news sources. It could be any of the platforms and social media driven with their algorithms, be it TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, not to mention, again, messaging out from religious institutions and even messages or ideas that are passed on from parental figures in our life. There, Whatever the source, there are a constant streams of ideas that if we're not careful, they end up like a tidal wave unleashed with with such a pervasive force that it has the potential just to knock us off our feet and, and just carry us along the direction of the flow of the river. Whatever is flying in this particular moment, in this particular time and culture, we just kind of get swept away with it. And so I was thinking, I was asking different people this week, what would those ideas be? What are the pervasive ideas that might be um, obvious and uh, and blatant, or else maybe actually more subtle, in our culture. I, so I, I literally asked a whole range of different people. My first one that I, I was thinking about myself um, is one I, I accept as one from a, comes from a place of privilege at times. But Rightmove, the property website, has this line: "Find your happy," which. Um, is kind of the blatant. It's, it's kind of obviously this notion that actually happiness is in this acquisition. It's just something that you don't have, but if you just get the next move, then that will bring happiness. And then just ignore the bigger mortgage non stress that goes with it. No, this, this new property will, will bring all the things you need, and, and happiness is something outside that you don't yet have. And that little phrase, "find your happy," I think it's still used on, on Right Move, which kind of draws you in. Somebody else said uh, in a bit more detail. There's, they said there's something like a secret, uh, a secret sacred self in our culture. The idea of a true you that you need to be authentic to above all else, and if you can't be authentic to this true you then there's something wrong happening and therefore we have to take down all the things that stop people being their authentic self. And it goes on, I don't even know what the authentic self means, but I can think of plenty of examples where if we are true to the impulses of our inner self, we end up in places that most of us wouldn't say are morally good places I suppose the lie would be that we are being told to seek individualistic authenticity where we should really be seeking authenticity to Christ-likeness, which asks us to deny ourselves. Just find your true self. Um, some, somebody else said about just the idea of you can be anything you want to be. I don't know if you were ever told that growing up, that you know you can, you can do anything and be anything you want to do. Um, probably not that true. Although I, I like the sentiment in some ways behind it. And, of course, you might just add in any implicit ideas that have particular views of success. I think sometimes whenever people talk success, there's often quite a lot in that package, uncritically examined. What is this success that we we talk of? Sometimes there are moments, I think, when we come to and we wake up to these realities, moments, I think, when even wider society kind of wakes up and ask questions amidst the landslide changes like what's really going on here this this isn't making us feel better this isn't helping with the UK's inequalities it's making it worse I feel worse when I pursue this or I feel more insecure when I go after that the more I get of this or him or her the emptier I feel not the fuller The more attention I create or the more attention I get, the more I crave and the more insecure I feel or the more I know, the more I feel overwhelmed and somewhat paralyzed in in taking next steps in life. And so some of the questions in my mind this morning, and I should give a spoiler alert, I'm not going to answer them all, but they're just questions I think this text that we've just heard provokes. Are like, how can we create order and peace in our lives uh, and for the good of our world amidst the chaos of a constant barrage of lies, ideas, and values that often compete against the ways and the values of Jesus? How could we live as well as followers of Jesus despite being surrounded by a culture that clashes on so many fronts? and which most of the time sees uh, Christian values as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Or for spiritual seekers, the question might be, how might Jesus be a better alternative to the things that I'm currently living for? And as well as uh, somewhere within all of that, how do Christians do all this without thinking that they are somehow the only enlightened, correct ones on all moral issues, constantly positioning themselves on a rather unattractive moral high ground? Or to ground this in the concepts of Revelation, our text for today, where is the whore of Babylon today? And how do we resist her? So I want to invite you to see your life and our world with all of its challenges through the very strange lens of a cosmic battle in the book of Revelation that you heard read. This is the penultimate quest we are on from the book of Revelation. One more message before uh, the end of April and we will be finished, done, maybe never to return again to the book of Revelation. Who knows? so we 're on this quest, and it 's a battle and it 's a battle about truth and lies it 's a battle for truth and it 's a battle about formation in worldliness versus counterformation against the flow of dominant imperial systems and I want us to try and understand something of that then, and also to try and think, well well, how does that play now what 's the battle now? But firstly then, and give a quick overview as we are not going to dive through every verse that you heard read um, from chapters 12 and 13 and 17. So chapters 12 and 7, 13, sorry, depict a cosmic battle. The imagery is to be taken as symbolic, pointing to important realities, real people, real situations, And remembering here, Babylon in the book of Revelation depicts Rome, the world of Rome and all of its imperial power that was operative at the time of St. John writing this. So we also have to, of course, note the strangeness of the world of the Bible, which does not reduce everything to a simple materialist worldview, that things that can only exist, that exist of, of matter. The Hebrew worldview in particular holds the complex tensions which which in some ways maintains or elevates the importance of the physical world, avoids Greek dualisms of like, there's body and soul and this divide. And it kind of assumes an interconnectedness of life, of physical, sociological, emotional, and spiritual dimensions. The Hebrew world, you kind of sees them as, as all together. And so we have to somewhat suspend our modern assumptions or suspicions of references to spiritual world to hear what the writer is saying and in order for the text to speak to us. And I guess if, if you're new to the Bible and you're sitting here just going like, what on earth to go here about Satan and the devil? I, I, all I would say is, is simply pointing to something that people hold today in a lot of cultures, namely and very simply, that there is more to life than just flesh and blood and physicality. The spiritual has a deeply held place in many cultures as it does in Christianity. So hear it through that lens. And we have in this battle then these key characters that you've already come across in the book of Revelation. So let me just highlight these key characters in this battle first of all and try to get just a hold of the basic plot the cosmic battle in Revelation is essentially between the Holy Trinity versus an unholy Trinity, the Holy Trinity of God Almighty, the Lamb, Jesus, and the Spirit, who have featured in chapters 4 and 5, versus this unholy Trinity of the dragon and the two beasts who appear in chapters 12 and 13, and the whore of Babylon, which is the extension of the two beasts in chapter 17. It's essentially between the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb is the sense of the plot in this battle. John, the writer, has deliberately created a parody of God's power in the form of the dragon. The, the, Note the dragon has the appearance of seven horns and seven heads. The number seven is completeness. And it looks like a lamb. So John is depicting here um, a dragon that is a parody of a true source of of power, which is God's. And this battle all comes down to following the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon. And, of course, the birth of Jesus is referred to in chapters 12. The lamb is described this time in terms of the cosmic scale, not like the sort of familiar Christmas story of Bethlehem and it's all quiet and shepherds and snow was falling, snow and snow and all these weird... No, it's painted here in an incredible cosmic picture at the time of the Christmas story. And of course part of the real plot is that in this battle the battle has already been won and is being slowly worked out on earth. So a victory is won and the cross from chapters 5 was the victory that we find in Revelation over an old enemy. But notice the the chaos and also the limitations around the dragon. We'll explain who the dragon is in a second but the dragon in this plot um, comes with limited scope because the dragon has been hurled down to the earth. He's not arrived on the earth or conquered it. The dragon has been hurled to the earth, defeated already, but importantly goes off to wage war against the rest of the offspring. So he's attempted to thwart the male child and could not, could not overcome him. But then he goes after the offspring and the offspring here defined as those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony. So it's God's people. And so the beast parades the power of the dragon in the same way that the lamb receives the power of the Lord God Almighty. He's playing off this parody. The beast receives the power of the dragon in the same way that the, the lamb has received the power of God Almighty. But the listener now already knows something. Everything the beast does comes from a defeated dragon and everything the unholy trinity does together is a limited parody of something good and something true. See, even in in chapters 13 verses 3 to 4, we have a a parody of resurrection where the beast is is seemingly um, knocked down and has a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and so it's, it's a mimicking the resurrection of Jesus. And again, we have a parody of a, an unholy uh, alliance that is coming against the one true God. But this, we should so we should what we can take from it is th- this mode of battle from this dragon and the two beasts, is is one their battle plan is one of deception, captured in the parody and captured in what we find unfolding in this plot. One of the things we should note is we say the, the dragon is limited and defeated, but the dragon is on the move, which is an important point in time to say, you no, know, th- this dragon is up to something that needs to be taken seriously. So if we, if we do a quick sense check on just where we're at, if this is not literal, what is to be taken uh, as literal? A deep breath. The the dragon represents an evil power in the person of the Satan, who has been somebody from the beginning of the Bible to the end, we find who appears. Um, The the name for Satan has a range of ones, which mean either the the accuser, the devil, or the father of lies. We often joke about someone, you know, or things being evil personified. Well, it's rooted here. This, This is evil personified in the person, the Satan, and just like in the teaching of Jesus elsewhere in, in uh, I think it's John's gospel, the, the accuser, a thief comes, according to Jesus, to steal and kill and destroy. And in Revelation, it just gets graphic detail or, or representation of what uh, his mode is and what he is seeking to do. Again, falseness and, and parody depicted here, lamb-like appearance. It's, it's deception, it's dealing in lies, it's dealing in half-truths. And, and making promises that are false. So the dragon represents the the Satan, the and evil in the in the Bible, and the beast um, times two is represents the incarnation of the lies and dragons in this world. So the beast from the sea and the beast on the earth. Specifically, the beast is referring to uh, put it concretely, and the listeners would have got that is is the Emperor Nero. You might, I don't know how good your Roman uh, history is, it's probably a lot better than mine, but the—it the, was the, this is just a ground, how this battle plays out, and not just in some sort of other cosmic level that's just so far above reality. No, no, no. they were talking about uh, the manifestation of evil on this world through um, the imperial leader, um, Nero. Um So the the number 666, in Hebrew, every letter has a a number, a numerical value. And so long story short, if you take the numerical value of the name for the emperor Nero, you get 666. Now, there's a few other variations, a few other scripts that have slightly different numbers and get a different emperor. But another way you could put it is the number of 777 is the number of completeness. So the number 666 is the number of the world, again, the sense of parity. So, the beast was taken as the leader of the emperor, uh, the emperor Nero. And so, th- this is what was conjured up in this mind this, this evil that has been unleashed, um, and they've seen it through the lens of Roman might and Roman power. And so, chapters 12 and 13, as. Crazy as they sound, we were talking about it before, it almost sounds like a little boy just got their dragon and is playing wars with each other. It can almost be reduced to that in our minds, but make no mistake, the first listeners would have heard the battle in 12 to 13 through the lens of the critique of Roman military might, the sort of might that raised the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. And 12 to 13, the critique of the empire is specifically about their critique of using violence and force and might and power And chapters 13, verses 15 to 16 is a good example of this domination by force, where it says, the second beast, you can say Nero, um, or whoever the emperor was, the historians differ a wee bit, but let's not worry about that. The second beast was given power to give breath to the second beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their forehead." And so it's capturing this idea of violence, empire, and force um, that they experienced in Rome at the time. In chapters 17 to 18, the critique of empire continues, but goes to another aspect of the empire, which is their excess and their wealth. And so the whore of Babylon here is an extension of the, the, the beast, and represents a critique of Roman wealth, excess, injustice, and cruelty that stem from their desire for wealth and money and possessions and acquisition. And so the, the picture of this prostitute riding on the bike is, uh, is a critique of saying, I see what's driving this Roman thing and, and I see what's going on here and it's driven by these desires and this, this desire for wealth and all sorts of seductions. Verse 3 of chapter 17 is a good example. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And so this battle was cosmic, but it was visceral. It was before their eyes. It was real question, so what, what does John's audience, um, what are they to watch for then? Or how does this spiritual battle play out in, in actual terms? Is the answer, one, they're looking for a little guy with a red pitchfork and, you know, like a, a Man United, uh, what's the word, logo or, what's the word? Mascot, thank you. <laughs> is, is that what we're looking for? Um, and I think John would say, uh, no. We, it's deception and lies that play to disordered desires like wealth, sex, money, power, military power that end up creating systemic structures, structures of evil, of cruelty and injustice. And so on a cosmic scale, the the plot and characters are revealed, but this battle takes the form as we interpret the symbols and with the diabolus, the accuser, the the, the liar, wreaking havoc and playing with disordered desires. And in Revelation, this is a lot about power, conquest, military might, lust, wealth, and money. And so, no, we're not looking for a little red devil. We're looking for um, a world of deception, something very human in its manifestations. The theologian um, Michael Gorman, he, he lists seven features of a theological account of empire. Uh, Namely, one, you don't have to remember these, by the way, Uh, no test at the end. One, uh, empire is a system of domination that seduces the powerful, partly with the promise of more power and intoxicates common people with false promise. Two, empire is both territorially grand and blasphemously self-promoting in its own grandeur. Three, empire self-presents as aesthetically pleasing and full of benefits to its subjects, but in fact, it covers over many abominations that use, abuse, and oppress, defenceless people. He cites modern examples at this point of human trafficking, sweatshops, unrestrained abortion as examples of that today. Four, empire will resort to anything necessary to hold on. Five, empires grow in part because the conquered, accept without protest or resistance. Important feature. It just happens. Six, Empires often die eventually of self-inflicted wounds. And seven, empires, plural, stand for particular historical realities, but theologically for much more permanent powers that we may call empire. And so there's this idea of it it has a particularity, it's referred to Rome, but in some and Babylon stands for Rome, but in some ways the writers also saying it's been Assyria, it's been Babylon. It's been Rome. It'll be somebody else. It's going to keep going. It's a cycle that goes on and on and on. Our thinking then today, C.S. Lewis uh, in Screwtape Letters, he, he, he writes this thinking about battle today. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Just write it all off. Nonsense. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them casting demons out of everywhere every day of life. Or one of my favorite lines from The Usual Suspects is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. We, a number of weeks ago we previously mentioned there was a slide that, that on how lies play to disordered desires that then build culture and the systemic disorder. It's almost like the human heart is taken by lies that p- prey on our desires, which create evil in the world. Um, there's been a, a history in the Christian tradition to pay attention to three fronts on the sense of what spiritual battle involves, the, the battle of the devil, the flesh, and the world. And John Mark Comer, as an American writer pastor, has revised in many ways this sort of this scheme of the devil, the flesh, and the world, in, in a recent book called *Live No Lies*. And it's a sort of nuanced approach uh, to show a modern retake on this how this old schema still is alive and well in our world today, still manifesting and still, um, I guess, creating chaos. And it's funny, as I reflected upon the battle, as it, but as it was just, as I kind of described it to you, and as I, I experienced it in, in the text, as this whole battle of the Roman context of John's day, I felt it was like simultaneously just describing our world today without doing lots of lo- like jumps logic and logic and time. Lies the propaganda, theopolitics, the role of deception in politics with Germany, Hitler, and Nazism, and today in Russia, With the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Eastern Orthodox Church, who the Eastern Orthodox Church have come up against in a unified statement to say, look, like Vladimir Putin is using uh, propaganda and lies uh, filled with religious imagination and sponsored by some aspects of the Russian Eastern Orthodox Church. And these lies to create, to play to people and to create um, evil and, and, and harm today. And Revelation, therefore, Invites us to see the cyclical patterns of systemic injustices, structural evil, lies of the devil, and the deception of human hearts. And in that sense, again, this repeating narrative from Napoleon, Hitler, Babylon continues and continues. And if anybody's Northern Irish, I would say you don't need to keep looking for the mark or the beast, the figure of this beast. In some ways, there's not just one, as many manifestations of figures who will rise up and take power uh, and control me. Forgive me any Northern, Northern Irish people who are judging me. I am um, from Northern Ireland, just in case you didn't realize that um, disclaimer. I just remember growing up, we were always looking around for this figure who was going to come. The am uh, getting nods here, honestly. When you grow up with that stuff, you're like, um, yeah, they're coming. Anyway, moving on. Um, I was agreeing loudly with a pod, a podcast I was listening to, a guy, he had been, I guess in my mind was this cyclical nature of evil reappearing. And a a guy had been at a Bitcoin tech conference. I don't even know anything about Bitcoin or blockchain or NFT, any of that. Um, I, I don't really know much, but he was listening to the speakers who were obviously debunking traditional banking systems, which in some course, would not be hard to do with um, some of the reputation that the bankers have in some areas of life. Um, the pod was picking up, though, that this Bitcoin blockchain guy was positioning himself as up against the establishment. As was like, don't trust the big banks, tr- but you can trust blockchain and you can't, can't uh, trust uh, uh, Bitcoin and everything that goes with that. And the, the listener was just going like, hold on a minute. And he, he, had, he had a theological insight. Uh, And you might have practical reasons why you might say you want to believe in Bitcoin where it's regulated or deregulated and all of that, but he was making the theological point, which was, there's just something about human nature. Even if it is good for a time, it goes bad. There's something about when you get into control and power that even, okay, the banking system, there's corruption in that, but you replace it with something new. For a time, it might work better, but he was just saying, I'm not having this guy (laughs) tell me that it's suddenly going to fix the world because... Because I know something about the human heart, and how easy it's taken to lies and disordered desires that creates more evil. Anyway, I liked it, and I—I I, I was cautioning myself though as well about chucking out examples here that could be taken as cheap slurs for already heated issues and cultural war issues that you know need time in and of themselves. So I wanted you know issues around so many. That could just be cheap shots. Um, but I, I do want to share just something I came across in in, in, the, was in the Washington Post by a, a, a columnist, Christine Ember. I, I know nothing about her. I, I don't think she's writing from a place of faith. But she was writing on post-sexual revolution ethics and how the ethic or principle of consent doesn't go far enough to help young people today live satisfying lives. lives. And the headline was, consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic, it's really interesting. She was talking about male violence. She was talking about how pornography is shaping young people's minds. And she's talking about just a general lack of trust in the romantic landscape. And she was saying the outcome is a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. While college scandals and the Me Too movement, this is her right, may have cemented a baseline rule for how to get into bed with someone without crossing legal lines, that hasn't made the experience of dating and finding a partner simple or satisfying. Instead, the experience is often sad, unsettling, and even traumatic. And even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections with each other, and our deepest selves. And here's the thing, the lie, This was what my, despite the many unpopular arguments that it's just a physical act. Deceptive idea. It's just something we do. It's just an impulse. And, and wherever her perspective she's writing from, she says, no, it's something that infects us to our deeper core. And actually, with caution, do we ever say, oh, it's just something physical. Now, in pointing to any examples here, I am, I'm not necessarily asking you to speak to see things how I might describe them, or even necessarily agree with how I describe them, but just noting how immersed we are in this world and ideas that just come at us sometimes untested, and that they're they're trying to form us, and ideas which have the power to create systems of thought today and realities in our world. But also, I just touched briefly on the way lies just affect us on a human and, and an individual level. Again, I'm a, a quoting uh, from John Mark Homer in his book, um, Live No Lies. He gives examples of lies we tell ourselves or, um, or believe about ourselves. Um, and he says, it's, it's the grown man who is berated by his father and comes to work to believe I am only as good as I am successful at work. It's the teenage girl comparing herself to the mirage of Instagram comes to believe I am ugly and unworthy of love. It's the pastor who is a high energy child, regularly scolded by his parents, who now believes I'm a bad person. That's not me, by the way. I didn't get scolded enough, to be honest. Um, Disclaimer. It's the entrepreneur whose prior business failed after the betrayal of his partner and now believes everything I do will fail. It's the middle-aged woman who was raised by an angry perfectionist mother and decades later still believes I have to be perfect to have peace. Again, the point isn't to try and convince you that that's your experience. It's just to say that subtly in every day that we live according to internal maps or scripts that maybe, maybe just don't serve us very well, that maybe can hold us back and hold us back from the way God sees us and the way God made us and the way God wants us to be. And so what were the tactics for victory in this battle that these early Christians um, that John was writing to in all of its color in this this book of Revelation? What were the tactics for victory in this battle? Well, firstly, they have to understand there was a battle. They needed to be awakened from naivety. And of course, he was concerned about their complicity just to go with the flow and accommodate to the ways of, of Rome. And the arena for the battling calls for alert minds, uh, alert to this world, alert to structures, alert to evil, alert to ideas and lies, alert to stories that kind of tell us this is true, that we just absorb untested, alert to values, They needed alert minds which will just not externalize and see all this big bad world out there and all the problems. None of that. Remember the the letters to the seven churches? He was saying, look, he was calling them in their formation to recognize that this was as much a work in them. It wasn't just a big bad world out there. They were alert to a battle. And a battle against an evil system at times. A battle that was often raging internally. And so the tactics then were ones of sifting you know just discerning what's going on here in me in this world and it's one of the first things he he awakens him to were they then to meet fire with fire and throw the dragon down that was attacking well no it was the male child the way of the lamb that brought about the victory the weapons are not ones of retaliation but ones of trust. They are disarmed, the parts are disarmed with this gentle love of the cross that we heard about in chapters five. And they were simply in one level to trust in the way of the lamb who has already won. The weapons are truth, love, forgiveness, and justice that all culminate in the pinnacle of the cross of Christ. A place where Christ conquers sin, death, evil, and pays for the sins of the world and demonstrates the absolute extent of his love for the world. John takes for granted that the Lamb's victory in the cross has liberated, done a new exit, a new work of liberation from tyranny, from evil, where sin does not have to dominate and dictate. He also paints a picture of a victory that has been won, but is yet, has been yet been brought to its final end. So there's a sense of a victory, but there's also a sense of trusting that one day, One day, there's still a greater reckoning when these things will be put right. But the church is directed in Revelation to bathe in the victory of the Lamb, the security in his love that has already won. Their identity is is in him, as the loved ones, the church. They are trusting in the cross. They are people who have been disarmed by the gospel of love of Christ. And therefore, they disarm others with the same love that they have received. And so their tactics are ones of, yes, sifting, But they're also ones of trust. Trust in this counterintuitive sacrificial way of love that Jesus has won on the cross. But their final tactic was also quite simply radical discipleship, which is the tactics of obeying. In verse 11 of chapter 12, is critical for understanding the importance of the witness of the church of God's people It actually means something in this whole plot. It's not just you've done a deal with God and sit and hunker down for heaven. Verse 11 says this, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It's a little verse that's saying a lot, but that equation of by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony shows that the the tactic was something about their committed form of discipleship, their participation in the cross of Christ. And Revelation has a high view of this martyrological community of martyrs, of witnesses who are described at times like an army. And it's not that their blood, many of them did die, achieves anything independent in and of themselves, but as a continuation of and a witness to the Lamb and the blood of Jesus their effective witness of obedience of looking like him means everything in the mission of God that he has in this world to put things right. And so Revelation calls for a radical discernment and break from a formation and just going along in worldliness and the dominant ideology of their day. If you think of Abraham, you know, Father Abraham first. He was called out of the air of Chaldeans, which in that time was Babylon. So right from the start of scripture, we know that we're called out of Babylon into the promised land of the thing. So we, there's something of our radical age of God's people in our response that is entirely appropriate and, and, and significant in playing our part in this battle. There's a, a sifting, a trusting, and obeying. Loyalty to Jesus, a fierce loyalty to Jesus. So, this morning, we will find this victory. How might we live? We will find the kingdom breaking in amidst the people who are sifting, discerning truth and alert to battle. We will find the kingdom breaking in amidst the people who are trusting, not waging war, but trusting, resting in the peaceful kingdom, praying for the kingdom to come in full, a people trusting in the God who says, who, who calls people love not building flaky identities on exteriors. Nothing in the world will heal our hearts like a father in heaven revealing the absolute extent of his love for us. We will find the kingdom breaking in the midst of people, obeying, throwing off the old and putting on the new, learning and and following Jesus and making fierce decisions to follow him in all areas of our lives. A community of people awake to formation in the way of Jesus. And we anticipate in this new season, this post-COVID, almost nearly sort of season, a movement of disciples immersed and committed to the peaceful way of the kingdom, pursuing and honoring Christ as king and enjoying the freedom he brings. Saying, Sift us, help us trust you and help us be fiercely obedient to you because it really matters to him. And it really matters for this world as we represent him in this world. It's funny, I don't know why I never thought of this before. I just You think it's such a weak plan to follow the, the crucified one. And and even in, in history, when you think about what happened to Rome, as they, as they in their day looked out to the might of Rome, as all the power, wealth, and everything, you would never have imagined that Rome would be a place that it would end up worshiping Jesus, the crucified one. There would be no one for a witness of a people and a church where Christianity would flow from. It was the most unlikely thing to ever happen. And yet, imperfectly to the extent, Rome was turned on its head by the crucified one and all the politics that went with that. And so as kingdoms of this world come and go, let us prepare ourselves to receive the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and unchanging in your ways of goodness towards humanity, consistent and pure in your love. Help us and fill us with your spirit so that we may more fully trust in Jesus. Open our eyes to the wonders of your ways. And thank you that hope has a name, healing has a name, justice has a name, and truth has a name, fullness of life has a name, the name above every other name, the name of Jesus, our Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a healer. We thank you that you show us a radical way of love. And I pray, Spirit of God, would you fill us with that afresh this day? for your glory. Lead us, we pray, in your peaceful kingdom. Amen.